Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. The A to Z of snooker is finally, finally, finally at an end. Once again, I sat down with Neil Folds, Al McManus and Phil Yates as we reached the end of the alphabet. So the final part then of the alphabet. V is for Viney, as in David Vine, and it's actually a catch-all topic about the people who presented snooker over the years. Everyone loved their favourites. I think he was, obviously, in the 80s, the best known. I mean, all sorts of people. I was on YouTube earlier... Des Lynham presented the Masters one year. David Davis, remember him? When he's a football man, uh, executive in football, he presented the Masters because, of course, Vine was always doing Ski Sunday. David Icke, famously. Tony Gubber, all these sort of people on the BBC. ITV had Dickie Davis, Tony Francis, Nick Owen, these sort of people. And they all do it differently. But one thing it's worth saying, it's a very tough job. They don't have an autocue. They have all sorts of people talking in their ear. Uh, it's not for everyone. I couldn't do it. They do a phenomenal job. Of course, another name on that list, which is definitely worth saying, Jeff Stelling, oh, yeah. who presented yeah. Sky um, in the early years and who was absolutely tremendous. The first ever television gig I had was with Dickie Davis, and he was an absolute legend, wasn't mm. he, with ITV. What a nice man, and a total pro. With regard to the BBC, David Vine, brilliant at his job, absolutely brilliant. Hazel Irvin now, I cannot speak highly enough of Hazel. She's just the ultimate professional. But in between, Doogie Donnelly. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, I actually remember working uh, with uh, Simon Reid, actually, okay. for, on a Sky event, which was in the studios there. Look, Simon, we know, uh, he's a commentator at Eurosport, great friend of us all, and he's just somebody like that. He, he was doing it. It's a long time ago now. There have been so many very good ones, as you say. Jeff Stelling was was excellent. I mean, the current batch, I feel lucky to work with the, with all of them. You know, Jill and, and Rishi on ITV and of course Andy and Colin especially on, on Eurosport and I think they're all very good and they're all good professionals as well as you say a lot of research goes in and uh, it's, you know it's, it's, it's hard work and it's some people think they can just walk into that job but it's a specialist job mm. it's, it doesn't matter for you you could be you could know everything about snooker but it, yeah. being a presenter it's a different story it's Absolutely. nothing to do it's, with that yeah it's worth saying that, that 
you know, we're in a privileged uh, position to, you know, you go behind the curtain and you actually see what these people do, and I, obviously I no chance to be able to do it because when you when you think about and you see it and you witness it, what they're doing live with, as David said, people in their ear, it's beyond me, you know, how they're, they're able to do it. I mean, I've stood next to Hazel, for example, on the steps of the Crucible, and she's doing a live link. Now, a lot of people think, oh, what's a live link? But it's standing in front of, uh, you know, a thousand people, cameras peopled everywhere, and she's got to deliver a two or three minute you know, no, secure as David said, with nothing, she just memorized it. And how she do, I'm standing next to her and I'm like, I'm having kittens, you know, and she's uh, she's just like clockwork, it's, mm. it's incredible. I think David Vine used to enjoy a couple of drinks while he was doing yeah. it as well, just to mm -hmm. keep him going, and that yeah. even bigger, better effort, isn't it? Really, yeah, here's one actually about Hazel. I think it was the December of 1990. We had, uh, you know, we have the uh, sports personality yeah. of the year every year, it was a big thing. We used to have it in Scotland and it was live. And uh, so, December 90, whatever age Hazel would have been then, uh, she was very young and uh, it was her first ever live broadcast. Because we, you know, it was like, uh, right, we're on here in 15 minutes, we're sitting in a kind of, um, a kind of, uh, Hall basically, and all the rugby guys, football guys, boxing, snooker, this, that, and the other. And um, it was herself and Dougie Donnelly, but she was really young. And even then, the first like, the, the program was on for it must have been at least an hour, and she never missed a beat. So it just shows you how she was made to do it. She's just brilliant yeah. naturally, but yeah. it's incredibly difficult. And also, and I'll say this about Hazel as well one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. She doesn't act mm. like a star. I remember years ago, I, I very briefly. Uh, was a snooker correspondent of a newspaper called The Sportsman, briefly because it folded pretty quickly, but it was like a betting newspaper. And I saw Hazel at the Crucible, and it was about half 12, and I said to her, because they wanted lots of content, they wanted interviews, I said, would you mind doing an interview? She said, well, I'm going on at one, but I'm off at six, I'll, I'll see you then. Now, a lot of people would say that as a way of just basically saying, you know, go away. I'm not kidding, five past six, there she was. You know, she had all Lovely. the programme, done the programme, all that, all that to think about, but hadn't forgotten, came down, did the interview, good as gold, you know. Yeah, very good. Great programme. And she does so much work in research. I've worked with her, not just on, on snooker, but on golf, uh, the Ryder Cup official film, and I wrote the script and she came in and she was just brilliant at delivering the lines and maybe doing a tweak here and there to suit the way she delivered and stuff. I can't speak highly enough of it. You know, you know this is a, we're at the Champion of Champions here, and this is a week's event. Now, when I'm commentating, if I stumble on, say, three or four sentences a week, maybe five, I won't particularly like that, but that's about par for the course. You know, you're going to occasionally in a match stumble on a sentence and, of course, you immediately recover and say it properly. I don't think I've ever heard Hazel stumble ever anywhere, anytime, even under the most extraordinary pressure. Well, it's for example, I... I fortunate again to get to work with her the last couple of years and I've gone in the studio and let's take take a player out, Lee Hang is playing, uh, he's not played that many, many times in TV and I'll go in, I'll sit down say Lee Hang's playing Judd she'll say yeah that Lee Hang's been doing well isn't he, but he beat a uh, thingy last week and he did this and he, he's up to this and that she, every player, she knows mm. about every player and that folder that you see sitting in front of her is just full of notes mm. um, she's incredible as they all are in different ways Yeah. every crucible on the final morning I'll sort of try and find her out and we'll sit down for 10 minutes and she'll say got any stats for me and I'll, I'll tell her a few that I've thought about that particular final and I can tell you every single year she tells me one that I haven't thought about and yeah. that's the level of the, the research she does 
David Icke, of course, as I mentioned earlier. Well, David Icke. Yeah, now, I mean, he spent a lot of time in the snooker world and then things changed for him. Do you think the two maybe are connected? Maybe, because <laughs> um, my biggest breakthrough was at the Crucible beating uh, Alex Higgins and he was the presenter then. If you look on mm. YouTube, the, the, the most interesting thing is not beating me in the match with me and Alex, it's David Icke being there. And I would meet him at breakfast in the mornings, you know, like he would, and he would seem the, the most, uh, I was going to say normal, he's normal anyway, but you know what I mean? And no, no different to anybody else. And then he, his life changed completely. He's mm. got a big following worldwide, isn't he? Yes. Huge. Yeah. But he was the, the quietest, most unassuming guy. And now he's pretty gregarious, pretty different, isn't he? And yeah. we're sitting in the Rico Arena in Coventry. Did they not play in goals for Coventry? Or mm. I think it was Hereford United, oh. I think it was. Ah, OK. Yeah, okay. I, I knew you would know that. I, 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 I did it with him at the Masters <laughs> on a couple of occasions, and and uh, like you say, Neil, you know, good presenter, very, very good. good, very good. What if he'll ever get back into presenting snooker? <laughs> I don't know. It'd be interesting. <laughs> Give him a call. Um, Alan Weeks as well, of course. He did Pop Black, and he actually was, he would pre-vine at the World Championship. If you check yeah. out like the old Radio Times, he, right. he he presented there. You know, all very different, but all have certainly contributed to lots to the coverage of snooker. I'm sure everyone will have their favourite presenters. Uh, speaking of favourites, W can only be whirlwind, can't it? Jimmy White. We're in Coventry. We were, we were here this week when he played Ronnie O'Sullivan. I think, you know, regardless of what you feel about Ronnie, a lot of people were hoping Jimmy would have one sort of last hurrah, and it, it didn't happen. But you saw as well the, just the affection, the enduring affection that people have for him. Well, I think it's a measure of his popularity that when he was in front of that match, at one particular time frame, he was actually Jimmy White was trending number one on Twitter in the UK. That's unbelievable. In the middle of an it's election campaign. You, it's unbelievable that you know that, because you're not on Twitter. But anyway. Well, no, I'm not, no, I'm not <laughs> but I do know a little bit about social media. Yeah. And when I was told, I thought, well, hold on a minute, you know, lots going on in the world here. There's mm. a middle of an election campaign, yeah. and Jimmy White is trending number one on Twitter in the yeah. UK. That just goes to show how popular the guy is. Yeah. Well, Neil knows him a hundred times better than I do, but I t- I'd sum him up in two words. Cool guy. He's just a, yeah. he's, he's just a real cool dude, and the, the, the nicest guy, probably, mm. in, in snooker, to be honest. Well, it, there's nobody like Jimmy. He's, he's is a complete one-off. I mean, I think people sort of speak like that about too many individuals, but I can honestly say that I've never met anybody like Jimmy. There's never a dull moment, is there? He's a master of the one-liner. He'll say something that will just make you just dissolve with laughter. I, I, I still think about um, when we were at, um, a couple of years ago at the Welsh, and it was, if you remember, terrible weather, really heavy snow. People like Mark Williams, he couldn't, he couldn't get home, he lived half an hour yeah. away. And Andy Goldstein, in mistake, said to John Higgins, uh, at, <laughs> I think it was at the Saturday, because like, obviously John's wife, Denise, and, and family would often come up and watch him play. And he said, <laughs> he said to, Andy said to John, are the family coming up? <laughs> Jimmy said, have they got a snow player? Are they going to get down here? It just made yeah. me laugh so yeah. much. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, talking about Twitter a second ago, in, the, in a world now where everybody's constantly offended about everything, mm. you could never be offended by anything Jimmy no, he's, says. He's, no. he's that sort of guy. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of off the table, yeah. on the table, you know, speaks for itself, really. I mean, I, I first met him when I was 12 and he was 13, playing in the club and I thought I was quite good I wasn't very good anyway at that age and I had a, my dad said have a game with him my dad knew about him he'd, he'd seen him and of course he was absolutely fantastic he could make century breaks and I couldn't make 20 um, you know I wasn't old enough or good enough but um, yeah great great talent real the most streetwise bloke you'll know you know 
Um, anyone would ever try and pull a stroke on Jimmy, no chance. <laughs> well, see straight through you. I've told this one as well before, just just quickly that um, the first time I ever met him, I was playing him in the quarters of the UK. Um, so it was at Preston Guildhall, and I'd never met him before. Um, so my first year as a pro, and uh, I seen him in the and you got the steps in the, the Holiday Inn Hotel there at the end of the bus station in Preston. And I went upstairs and I seen him and I thought, oh God, there's Jimmy White over there, you know. And he came over and he was like, and sorry about the accent, but he's like, all right, mate, playing tomorrow. You know, he's going, how you doing? I'm Jimmy. And I, right away, it's I thought. Like Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, Glaswegian Cockney. Um, and I thought straight away, I went, what a good, what a nice yeah. guy. You know, I was yeah. like, just to be in the room with him, I was like, bloody, there's Jimmy White over there. The other thing about him is he's the most popular bloke you'll ever meet. His, his yeah. phone is ringing. Yeah. And there's all kinds of people from all around the world Positive. phoning him at all yeah. times. His phone is never off. There's always someone different on there. But maybe, you know, obviously, inevitably, we talk about the world vinyl defeats. Maybe that was a factor in not winning it, the fact that he was a bit too gregarious. Like, you look at someone like Hendry or Davis, they're just going to shut themselves off from everyone and focus on job in hand Jimmy has time for people maybe too much time for some, for yeah. some people over the years and, and it, I guess it's counted against him but one thing that's clear and we've seen it again here in commentary is his, just lo- his love for snooker hasn't, hasn't gone away you know he's had a lot of knocks we know that but he still <coughs> just loves the game loves playing loves being part of it all I think he's too much has been put into those six world finals the fact that he got to six world finals is a great achievement you know he won the Masters he won the UK he won a lot of things he won that thing in Birmingham didn't they in 1990 or whatever yeah, year 91. it was yeah. 91 he won that event um, he, he's, he's won everything he's been in six world finals he's one of the great crucible players isn't he mm. when you look back at a player's career and the totality of it yes the world championship is massively important but it's not the be all and end all I think his career has been much better than certain people who've won the championship so you know yes. we shouldn't we shouldn't define him by the fact he lost those six world no. finals. Well, the point is he'll always be Jimmy White. Let's see, that's the thing, and you know it's all part of the heady mix of his life and career. But what a life! And as he said himself, you know, he was just a kid from Tooting, who has become like a, a national treasure basically. And he's an unrepentant hedonist. He just enjoys himself. Mm. Great. Why yeah. not? Yeah. It's not a rehearsal. This. This is the real thing. Cool, dude. You talk about this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank God for that. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. We'll move on. X is for exhibitions. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you see what I've done there? Yeah. yeah I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, of course, they, I guess they've become less important to players because there's so much torment snooker to play in and, and money to be earned from that. But certainly in the early days of snooker, you know, that's how you made your living, isn't it? Because there wasn't a professional circuit, and the old pros were brilliant because they could not only play well, certainly, you know, what was considered well in those days, make a century break here and there. But also entertain the crowd. Graham Miles was brilliant, you know. He was a good player, world championship finalist, pod black winner, make the odd century, good standard of snooker. But he could also, in the middle of breaks, tell really funny jokes. Mm. Dennis Taylor, of course, the same. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, I think it was a different era. Obviously, the aforementioned Jimmy White still does exhibitions, but um, and a few others do. Um, but you know, it was there have been some great entertainers who do those. I mean, Steve Davis. An exhibition that he would do would always be great. It would be funny. It'd, it'd be great, nice to all the members. He'd do trick shots. I think that's important. It, not everyone does them, mm. but that you know, a little the night rounded off by trick shots seemed to mean a lot. I think the one I saw first of all was Jackie Ray actually, and he was terrific. He wasn't a particularly great player, but he did. A, a, you know, he enjoy a couple of Guinnesses, and he would be 
almost like a comedian, wasn't he? And, and he and he did uh, the the chopsticks shots. He's the first person to ever do that. The, the sort of the, the shot with the, the ball running down two cues, and you've got to see it really to understand it. He's and the other one I would say who did a great exhibition was Cliff Thorburn, uh, uh, who also did brilliant trick shots at the end. So those guys absolutely got good pros, and they would give you a ter- really really top night. Mm, I, I, I've had a couple of funny um, thoughts about exhibition. I don't do many. I do, do the odd one. Um, but it's, it's, when you're a, see when you're a snooker player and you're, you're on the tour, let's say, um, so you're obviously at a pretty good standard, and you sign, you kind of take it for granted because it, I mean the standard of play. Because I only really ever mix around a snooker table with other pros. You know, John Higgins, Graham, they're all good players constantly. When you go to do an exhibition, you play maybe six or eight guys, and it'll be the best players of that club. Now, quite frankly, they're all rubbish, <laughs> generally. But it's quite cha- it's quite charming in a way because it reminds you that the game's difficult. You know, I go, I've, I've been in clubs and they'll get this is the club champion. He's going to play, and he'll maybe score nine, and then he'll miss like a dolly black. And yeah, all right, they're nervous, but you, you, it, it sort of reminds you that the game is di- and you, you maybe you're decent you know mm. as a player because you take it for granted because you spend time with Dottie with John with Stevie Ants and whoever you know the people that you mix when, with. I, when I was 14 or 15 I was that club champion right <laughs> rubbish but I didn't know yeah, and I, yeah. I played Ray yeah. Reardon in an <laughs> exhibition in front of a lot of people yeah. and I got the three piece suit on everything Red, black, red, snookered him. The worst thing I ever did. Oh, then he he's got gone, ha, 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 And he put me in a million snookers after that. <laughs> and I knew my place, let me tell you, after that frame. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that any exhibitions that Ronnie O'Sullivan does, he always seems to make a 147 mm. now as well. That's, that rounds off a good night. Mm. The amount I've seen, it's just unbelievable. There was a story, they weren't always, you know, they weren't always necessarily um, successful events. There was a story Fred Davis told years ago that turned up somewhere in the middle of nowhere to, to an exhibition and sort of got there and said to the, the guys running it, where's the table? And the guy said, well, we thought you'd bring it with you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you've going to strap it to the roof of his car or something. So, But of course, for those guys, and this is why Pop Black was important, because suddenly, once they had TV exposure, they could actually earn a lot more money doing exhibitions. And as I say, when there were no tournaments, it was important, wasn't it? I suppose the current crop of players, though, just don't, the top players, they don't need to do them. I know some do. But they don't need to do them now, do they? The other, the other thing that a lot of the old pros used to do, and I, something I would love to have done, was the, the, the holiday camp circuit, mm. doing exhibitions around those. And I think Ray Reardon had a, 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 did an awful lot of them. And uh, I, I, I remember John Virgo once telling me the story that he replaced Ray for a week. Ray was on his holidays. And uh, he, first night he jumped into to the bed and there was a door in the bed. <laughs> a door just completely just jumped in. It was a, and it turned out it's that Ray's back was bad. And he used oh, to sleep right. on a door and they didn't realise that Ray wasn't there. So they left it in there not knowing that um, JV was doing the exhibition. The funny thing is, well, exhibitions, not a prop, I don't know about, maybe it is still now. Um, a lot of guys in the club, you go, they've maybe never seen 100 break live. Yeah. So, it's, you know, 100 break to a pro is like getting up in the morning. It, it mm. just happened because it's pretty, pretty straightforward stuff. But to do one in the why he's made a hundred, you know, because maybe the highest break in the club's like seventy or yeah. eighty or something, and mm. you know, so it's, it's it's probably a bit of a thrill for people to see, uh, you know, a pro. I think for the vast majority of people, exhibitions obviously are a way of making money. But I think for one player, they really helped his professional career. Ian McCulloch. Mm. Now, when he was coming up, he wasn't very well known, so to go an exhibition, it needed an angle. And what he used to do was say to the club, "Okay, if I don't make a century break." I'm not going to get paid. Now, if he gets to the last frame of the night and he's not made one, he's under pressure. So if he makes one there, 
it learns him how to deal with pressure. And of course, he went on to reach the the semi final of the world championship. Yeah, and you were telling the story, Phil, the other day. You went to you went to a billiards exhibition featuring Clive and Eddie John. What was how was that? Well, it was a snooker it was a snooker exhibition. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, and then some billiards afterwards. Oh. Uh, it was a two-day exhibition. It wasn't meant to be, but it, it stretched <laughs> past midnight. <laughs> uh, Eddie Charlton, of course, got that Australian medal, and he was Eddie Charlton AM, and of course, everyone called him after midnight after that. Um, but uh, yeah, Eddie wasn't best suited for the exhibition circuit. Let us put no. it that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we've got two more letters. Why? Again, this is slight. Well, it's very much a cheat. Why is for why me? As in the part luck plays in snooker. And it's amazing, isn't it? We always see this, even in big matches. A game of intense skill, and if you haven't got the skill, you can't win. But sometimes you just need to be lucky, because at the end of the day, it is just balls running around the table. Yeah, I think I think um, what I remember straight away that there was I played Cliff Thorburn in a match many years ago, and I had a fantastic run of the ball in the match and won. And I was used to people if you got a good run, pulling faces. There was quite a few players in that era that would shake their head and they'd just mm. be like the world was against them without going into it. I think we all get dragged into that sometimes. Anyway, I played Cliff, beat him, had an outrageous run of the ball, and afterwards, and he didn't even flinch. And after I said, Look, I have to say that I, I had a great run there. I'm sorry about that. I said, But I'm really impressed with the way you took it. He goes, Listen, I'm the guy who fluked to red and made a 147 and won <laughs> however yeah. much money it was. Was it 20 or 30,000 or yeah, whatever yeah. he won? Yeah. He goes, And I always think about that. So I never get involved in bad luck because I had a great mm. slice of good fortune there. And I think that's a great attitude to have mm. because most of the time you, you do think, Why me? as you called it. And uh, I thought it made me think that, that that's the attitude you need, really. Mm. Frank Callan, one of the great coaches of modern snooker, one of the great coaches in snooker history, really, he always used to get riled up, and I have exactly the same opinion as he did, about these people who say, oh, you know, look, it always evens itself out. Absolutely not true. Even if numerically it evened itself out. If you fluke the last black to win the World Championship, that's far more important mm. than fluking a red in the first frame of some meaningless tournament. So numerically, definitely might equal itself out but you know overall it doesn't you can't always be unlucky though can you really oh no that's no the, that's the other thing no no I mean, some days you're going to be unlucky like, elf unlucky elf yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right yeah. I guess the point is though like you alluded to with Thorburn you know some players deal with it better than others you look at someone like Mark Selby he seems able to just you know whatever's happening he'll cope others you can see like the first thing that goes wrong they think it's not going to be my day why am I even bothering to be here well especially in the modern game because mm. the guys are that good one bit of luck goes a long long way doesn't it so you know if someone gets a fluke they win the frame and probably back in the day it wasn't as uh, big a deal if someone got a fluke they'd maybe make 20 make mm. 30 but it's gone out of the game though people shaking yeah. their heads there's a few that do it now mm. and you think well why are you doing that but there was a time 25, 30 years ago, I can think of six or seven players, I might have even been one of them, um, who would you would think the world was against you out there. Some were not nice to play. Some of even good friends, you think, oh, you didn't want to play them because you could, I'd hate, it, hate the way they used to complain about bad luck all the mm. time and uh, almost looking for it. Mm. Funny enough, uh, I was just actually thinking, you, you mentioned Mark Selby, um, I think there's an art in snooker for the guy who gets a fluke not to feel guilty. That's yeah. the key. Don't yeah. feel because Ronnie's not very good at that, is he? No, I, he gets a fluke and then misses. Yeah, I, yeah. I, and and I've struggled with it down the years. Like for example, one one of the matches this week, Mark Selby against Yan Bingtao, he fluked a red first straight off the bat, didn't mm. he? And he made seventy and went one nil up and one four nil. So there wasn't an ounce of guilt, and that's that's an art in itself. Yeah. You can you can 
because there is a there's a nice feeling when you put a long red and you feel like you've got in because of you, not because of the, the some guy in the sky or whatever. So, um, just just brazen luck. But um, it's a great thing, great weapon to have if you've no guilt whatsoever. And uh, I, I, you you know the old gentleman thing where you put your hand up. Mm. Or th- I wish I didn't do it. And Stephen Hendry was brilliant at it, by the way, because I played Stephen just briefly. I was out in Thailand. Might have been China years ago, and the misrule was kind of. Anyway, cut a long story short, I'm four three behind. I'm something like fifty two behind with four reds. I've snookered them. He's played out. <coughs> excuse me. He's played out the snooker. He's not hit a red, and the referee's called a miss. But he's gone. It was impossible. What happened? I could have easily put it back, and I would now, because um, I don't feel guilty about it. Now. But Stephen taught me a lesson. Um, I didn't put it back. I still won the frame anyway, and so it went four each. So then Stephen snookered me in the decider. I've played out of it, missed a red by like the, um, a cigarette paper. The ref's gone foul four and I missed Steve that back, please. And I went, you, ba-, you know. And, <laughs> and, and, but he taught me a little. He'd yeah. he, he done the right thing. Yeah. No guilt. Yes. It's, it, all's fair in love and war, and yeah. that, that's the best attitude. Maybe the attitude should be the same as the South African Robbie Grace in the late 80s. He wasn't a very good player at all, but when he had a fluke, you know this, he used to laugh in people's faces. Yeah. No pretense whatsoever. Is that while he was rolling around the floor as well? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I guess, though, so, you know, the, 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 the moral is, you know, life's full of luck isn't it and, and why should snooker be any different and uh, although obviously it's very hard when you see your opponent fluke a ball and clear but it's going to happen it might happen to you the next round yeah. and luck makes the game more intriguing yeah. it makes the, more, the game more compelling to watch because you never know what's going to occur so finally Zed now nothing stands for Zed uh, but Zed is the end of the alphabet but rather than talk about the end I'd like to talk about the future, the future of snooker, because we're here in what seems like a golden era. There's a lot of tournaments. What are you laughing at? I'll make a deal with you. We'll just start again from A. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about that? Or I'll, or I'll continue. No, 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 I'll continue. Yeah. It, feels like we're, it feels like we're living in a golden era. A lot of tournaments. Guys can earn a lot of money. Loads of snooker on TV. But I guess you've got to kind of think, okay, but ha- will it continue? You know, the Chinese boom has been a big thing for snooker, but booms don't last forever. We know that from the UK. In the UK, a lot of clubs have shut down. There seems to be fewer people playing. So who are the champions of the future? So I'd be interested in your thoughts on to where snooker is heading, maybe five, ten years from now. Obviously, Barry Hearn, not even he can live forever, so someone's going to take over at World Snooker. Phil, what do, what do you think? Well, everything is cyclical. We said this to sort of ease the, the blow of how the game went down so I suppose we should say to you know mitigate our enthusiasm about it at the moment everything is cyclical and, and things will change right now it is a golden era there's no doubt about it but we should never though get complacent it's a great time to be involved in the game but it might not always be a great time I, I think that um, you know, I think that the way the game is now you look at the class of 92 I always talk about the, those guys uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan John Higgins, Mark Williams, and a few others. I think Joe Perry turned pro at the same time. He's still a leading player. But I think it's, it's a combination of how great a player they are and always were is one of the reasons why they're still at the top. And the other reason is there's not too many challenges coming through. Certainly not from the UK. Uh, obviously, we've got, you know, you've got Selby, we've got Trump, we've got all these guys, very, very good players still, Neil Robertson. As what coming through also, he's at the top of the game, they've been world champion. 
Stuart Bingham is in his 40s as well. There is a, a lack of talent in the 20s. I mean, Judd is 30 now. There's not too many 20-somethings. Kyron Wilson's one. I don't know where they're going. I mean, who is good? Who is going to come through from the UK? It's, it's, what's going to happen is you're going to get a lot of brilliant young Chinese players, and they're not ready yet either. But that's where the future is going to be. In five years, Tom, can we honestly say we think that Ronnie, John, and um, Mark Williams, are they still going to be at the top? If, if they are, yeah, all well and good. But if they still are, then something's wrong somewhere. And one of the problems is, you know, if you're a young kid who has seen Snooker on TV and you like it and you want to play, your nearest club might be miles away now. The the, the, it's not like there's just a club in the town centre. It might, you might yeah. have to go 20 miles and then yeah, you're too far. There used to be 10 of them yeah. or 5 of them. Well, I think one of the problems is that, for example, there's one young lad in Scotland who's got some potential. Uh, he could be a good player. And he kind of a... Not so much mixes, but he's played against professionals and he's really young. I don't think that's a good thing. I think you should have a, a sort of learning ground against guys your same age. Then the best players, say there's, if there's 50 of you or 100 of you, which there was for us back in the day, myself and Neil, um, actually hundreds, then the best 5 or 10 or 20 become good players. Then they move on to try and become professionals. There's just no, no one playing. It's as simple as that. This boy up our way... Um, be, I feel sorry for him. I would love if I'd, he's going to miss out on going into a club with his one of his parents uh, on a Sunday morning with a hundred other boys standing with cues in their hat. He's going to miss out on all that, and that's where you get your education. I was actually talking to Joe Perry about it actually in China recently, and we said, um, you know, we're, we, we were actually chatting about the boy the boys back home. They, they're never going to experience going in the club at ten or eleven in the morning as we did then playing a pro-am at night time, and then going and playing a night flyer at midnight. I mean, you just played, constantly played snooker. Here's a quick one. And, and imagine anyone doing this now. We were in, uh, going to the, what they call the pro ticket tournaments. This was uh, the sp um, spring of 89. Um, myself and uh, two or three mates, we played in a pro-am in Glasgow on the Friday evening. It finished at midnight. We played the pro-am, uh, one of us probably got to the semis or whatever it was and we jumped in the car and drove to the Isle of Wight for the pro ticket at, at the Isle of Wight at, at midnight and we never even thought this is going to be a long journey <laughs> this, this could be a nightmare no there's a car there's a tournament let's go and you go they're going to I mean you think back of it now it's crazy but that was the part of your education of being a snooker player you know you, you you couldn't go to the Isle of Wight if you weren't any good because you were guaranteed to lose in the first round. So you were you were forced to be a good player. So the way you're forced to be a good player is you go to pro-arms against 100 other boys and either you sink or swim, you're going to be a good player. So Can I just ask one you... question? I think it's related to this. Mm. Why did snooker die out in Canada? Because there were so many really good Canadian players... Uh, not just the obvious with Cliff, with Kirk, Stephen, Bill Werbenick. There were some terrific players, you know, Alan Robidoux. Why is there nothing in Canada? And is it the same thing that we're seeing a little bit over here? Still the old greats are still the same. What happened in Canada? I don't know the answer to that, but I guess the culture changes in countries, doesn't it? And one of the sort of, one of the sort of cultural elements in Britain, it was very often a father would take a son. And if that link gets broken, that's an issue. And you've spoken, Alan, about... 
the way that you know you've seen young players in the club on their phones rather than practicing and focusing. They yeah. pot a ball, they go on Facebook. Yeah. That's no good, is it? Is no, it at all? no. I mean, as a kid, as I say, we, you know, driving to the Isle of Wight, it was mm. a, it was an eight-hour drive. But if it, it, it seemed like it could have been eight minutes, it's irrelevant. It's a mm. tournament down there. You go and um, yeah, kids now. I'll, I'll be honest. There's been a couple of decent prospects in, in Scotland in, in the last what five ten years. But I knew from straight away, you're talking about phones, Dave, and you're a million percent right. Um, they're on their phone more, more than they are on the table. And I just look at them and go, and I, standing with a phone, I say, well, you can forget it. <laughs> Here's a quick one, Kyron Wilson. I first came across him at uh, the academy at Gloucester, the South West Snooker Academy. And uh, there was a bunch of the younger guys in the corner. There was a room with about four tables in it. And they were all carrying on and talking about who's got the flashiest phone or who's mm. got the whatever. I don't know what they were talking about. Kyron walks in with his cue um, at like 29 minutes past seven. He's on at half past seven. Cue out, hit balls for half an hour, put his cue in the case and out the door. Mm. And I thought, I, look, I, I didn't know him at all. I'd heard his name and whatever and I thought, you've got a chance. Mm. He, you've got a big chance. And then we know where he is now, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of is cultural. A lot of, mm. you know, one of the problems as well is like video games are so good now. A lot of people would rather just play like the Snooker 19 game rather than, which me and Neil did the commentary for, by the way, which uh, um, would rather play that than go, go to a club, like I say, which they might take them an hour to get to, you know. This is a valid viewpoint, and I think it definitely is true. What you've got to say, though, is that other sports, football, tennis, golf, I've got a vast array of young talent coming through mm. from all parts of the world. Yeah. And obviously phones and computer <coughs> games affect those people as well, mm, and yet yeah, they're true. coming through. So mm. maybe it's something else in snooker. I just can't put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, again, in terms of the club shutting down, I mean, I'm not saying the smoking ban was wrong, but a lot of people went to snooker clubs. Like I say, dads would go maybe, and they'd catch up with their mates, have a drink and a smoke while their kids would play. If they can't do that anymore, they don't go. So the fact that culture has changed has, has had an impact. You know, snooker's not like those sports. It's not like you're sort of taking your son or daughter to, to, to some athletic event. You know, it's, it's very often... I mean, John Higgins said, like, he first played snooker because his dad took him and his brother into the club. They played, he had a drink. Yeah, it's not just the kids that are not going. It's mm. the old characters that Neil will... Sure. Well, he'll know hundreds of them but from back in the day that, that cheated you with two reds left. They would do... You know, <laughs> they would do... They would go to the toilet and leave you to set the balls up. Yeah set the balls up and all that. You, you had to grow up quickly as a mm. kid. You, you ain't going to do that on a phone, that's guaranteed. Mm. Yeah. I think just to wrap up then, I think, like, I'm hopeful snooker will continue to do well because it's such a great sport. You know, it's a great game. People love watching it. People love playing it. We need more players, certainly. We need new players, definitely new stars, and maybe they will emerge, you know, given, given time. But the key to it, actually, is what we've already talked about on the podcast, which is television. If television still wants to put money in, then people will earn money professionally from playing it because it's supply and demand. And there's no immediate sign that's going to change. We can't predict 50 years from now, but in the next 10 years, I don't see any reason, if they're getting good figures and getting good entertainment out of it, why, why that should change. That's my opinion. I'm biased, obviously, and, and we all are, probably. Um, but I, I look at other sports... I find it difficult to get in, into another sport, mm. you know, like football or VARs and all the cheating and putting your hand up for a throw-in when you've kicked it out. and It's just constant cheating. And um, To me, snooker's a, the truest sport there is. I, yes, I'm biased, but it's, it's the truest sport there is. There's a piece of wood. The other guy's got a piece of wood. Go on that table and see when you come back. Tell me who won. 
Mm. All right, okay. Um, that's the way. It, you know, there's no advantage or anything. That's what I love about it. You know, it's com- it's mental combat, it's physical combat, and uh, it's, it's one of the best games there is. Mm. Cool. And you know what I want? I want an alphabet with more letters so we can do more of this. <laughs> well, maybe, we'll, like I say, we'll just start another one on, on, on Snooker's Longest Running Podcast. Thank you for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.